this is a headline that grabbed my attention on Substack. BA5 is a variant for boosted people. South Africa versus Portugal, same variant, opposite outcomes. Now, one of the things about this, this is an independent journalist named Igor Chudov, and but he's being shared on Twitter and different social media platforms, and he has been on many articles. So I, when I dove in this article, I said, wow, this guy is really laying out facts and graphs in a, in a, in a, in a way so compelling. I decided, you know what, I got to meet this guy. I want to see, you know, first of all, about this article, but how he's gotten into this material and what got him in the middle of this. So it's my honor and pleasure right now to be joined by Igor Chudov. Igor, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me, Doc. All right. Um, so this article I found very interesting, but I want you to take us through it. You know, you're looking at this, these new variants, um, uh, B4, but especially 5. Why are you comparing Portugal and South Africa? What, what made you decide to do that? These are two major countries where there's two variants. They're called sister variants because they're so similar. They predominated, and specifically BA5, in Portugal as well as South Africa. However, the outcomes were so different that it seemed worth writing about. So here we have some slides. Now you're saying that Portugal and South Africa, they're, they're, the main variant right now is this BA5, right? What is the difference? What are you seeing that's different? And, and what is your conclusion on that? I was struck by how different is the amount of deaths and cases in, in both of these countries, especially compared to their own history in January when everybody had Omicron. And uh, somehow for South Africa, this latest so-called wave of BA4 or 5, which I will just refer to as BA5, is yep. a very minor wave. It's, it's, it's really a blip on the radar, barely noticeable, both in cases as well as deaths. In Portugal, okay. however, it's a huge wave of uh, illness followed a couple of weeks later by a large wave of deaths, similar to what they experienced in January. This is daily new confirmed COVID-19 deaths per million. You can see Portugal starting to rise up, you know, moving towards some of the highest that they've seen in a long time. If you look back those blue lines, it goes way back. South Africa is the opposite. They've already come out of their high death rates and they're dropping down and not being affected right now at all uh, by this new variant. And so both of these having very different outcomes from this variant. What uh, then, so what, what did you find separates them? Why are they different? These countries aren't exactly identical, but they're similar in many ways. Portugal has a better medical care, a little older population. South Africa has HIV. But these are the two countries we can compare because they both have this BA5 wave. And Portugal has six times more deaths. Why? What, what's so wrong in Portugal? What didn't go right? And the only answer is their vaccination rate which Portugal was described as a country where there is nobody left to vaccinate. Wow. Unfortunately, it doesn't help them. Right. So they're fully vaccinated. They've got vaccinated. They're much higher than we reported just last week on our show. I think South Africa is somewhere in the 30. I think they're under 40% of them are vaccinated. Portugal, as we saw that headline, nobody left to vaccinate. That's how vaccinated they are. And now they're having a rise in deaths. Um, and so that is quite alarming.
Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the FLCCC weekly webinar. I'm Joyce Kamen, and I am the Vice President of Public Information for the FLCCC. And I'm sitting in for the one and the only Betsy Ashton, who is off tonight and for a couple of weeks. So um, you get me tonight, and uh, we miss you, Bets. So we will see you soon. Uh, that short clip we just saw from the High Wire sets us up very nicely for our discussion tonight on the Omicron variants B4 and B5, which are producing more and more cases around the world, including in the US. And again, we will further the discussion on the reasons why some regions are experiencing higher case and death counts than others from these variants. Tonight, Dr. Robert Rapiti of South Africa will join our FLCCC physicians, Pierre Corey, Paul Merrick, and Flavio Katajani to discuss the B4 and B5 variants of Omicron. Plus, because these variants are more prevalent in Brazil, where Dr. Katajani practices, and in South Africa, where Dr. Rapiti works, the discussion will focus on the protocols they are using to speed resolution of patients' symptoms from these variants. Our panel is also going to review information about the variants themselves, if they are more virulent, how transmissible they are, and how they differ from the original Omicron variant and more. Plus later, of course, we're going to answer your questions. So don't forget to, during the evening, several of our nurses will be answering questions that you place in the Q&A portal right here on Zoom. So look for Christina Moros, Samantha Hanks, Scott Rogers, and Pamela Burnham to be online with you. So without further ado, we're going to ask Dr. Corey and Dr. Merrick to start us off this evening. Dr. Corey, you have a new background. That's amazing. Yeah, I'm not ideal. I'm in an airport, but I am representing. <laughs> Just want to put oh, that wow. up. Oh, yeah. Okay. So I know how to travel. Excellent. Hi, Paul. Excellent. Hey, Pierre. All right. Well, take it away, guys. All right. So we, I want to get to the clinicians who've been seeing this stuff, but we'll go through a, a few slides first. Okay. So we're going to talk about B4-5 tonight. It's coming. It's here. Um, we want to know uh, how we should think about it, how should we, sh we should approach it. And we have our colleagues, uh, Dr. Rapidi and Katajani, that talked to us about it. Um, but if you look down here at the green bars, uh, BA4-5 has now just hit the, the combination. They have identical spike proteins. They have some other differences, but the spike is similar. And they've just hit 50%. Uh, a month ago, they were around uh, 6%. And so the, the, the share of this variant in the United States is now currently rising rapidly. A um, couple of papers on them showing that at least in a hamster model uh, and in cell culture experiments, it looks like these newer variants, the 4 and 5, um, they are more efficiently uh, infecting human alveolar lung cells, epithelial cells, and they're more fusogenic. And in the hamsters, they seem to be more pathogenic than the winter Omicron uh, variants of the A2. Um, this is a, a paper comparing uh, a vaccinated uh, with looking at the titers against BA4.5. They have almost none. If you have two vaccines right after a booster, you come up, but nowhere near the naturally immune if you got the earlier Omicrons. And so uh, the vaccines and the boosters don't seem to be doing uh, uh, much of anything. Um, this is a little bit of a side topic. It was interesting. You know, Juan Chimie, one of our analysts, which many of you guys know his work, um, he put together this slide, which I thought was curious. As he was looking at B845, he made 
he made the observation that, and he, he's kind of asking the question, why does every important variant emerge from South Africa first? And when you see this, right, this line for South Africa, it just travels through many, many, many other countries throughout the world. But always on the leading edge, you're seeing South Africa, right? And, and so with BA4, BA5, always seemingly starting. And um, that's also seen with mutations. So the first time they pick up these mutations, like S477, H655, boom, South Africa, and then rockets around the world. Uh, other mutations, same pattern, same pattern, same pattern. Um, one not so funny hypothesis is that there's a lab that's launching these things. Uh, I don't know, because it doesn't make a lot of sense, because there are other uh, variants. So, for instance, gamma in Brazil, it skyrocketed in Brazil, but then it came down and you didn't see all of the other countries around the world. Now, Nigeria, probably less people travel into and out of Nigeria, but again, huge variants. And then they came down. Me being in an airport is not ideal, but it is what it is. But uh, but anyway, you guys get the point here. Um, and then here's here's an interest. Another observation, which is that. If you look at the hospitalizations in South Africa, it's much less than in the early Omicron over the winter. Um, but if you look at the proportion in the ICU, it's actually quite a bit higher. So at the peak of this wave, you were about 6% in the ICU. And right now, with much less hospitalizations, it's it's over 10. It's about 12%. Um, this is just a random observation I made. I was looking at New York Times data. And they have lots of data on lots of aspects of COVID. And it's all up to date as of June 28th. For some reason, this comparison, seems to end uh, either in early May or mid-May. They're just not keeping this up to date for some reason, and I wonder why. Uh, but anyway, in terms of BA4-5, when you look at a few countries like Brazil, United States, and South Africa, um, you have very uh, markedly different uh, immunization rates. Brazil is quite a bit higher than, than Australia and, and, and way higher than South Africa. right? And then if you look at boosted, very few are boosted in South Africa, maybe 5% boosted. But when you compare the three countries, you know, almost like with Trudeau, when he compared Portugal and uh, and South Africa, and again, South Africa being the comparator may not be perfect, right? Because different health systems, different amount of testing, different herd immunity. Um, but it is remarkable that uh, it doesn't seem to be uh, any good to be a heavily vaccinated country. You, United States always just seems to be one of the worst performing countries in the world in terms of uh, cases and deaths. And so here, here again, you see South Africa is very low. Um, you know, Igor, he did really good work. I, I like some of this stuff. Dell already kind of talked about it on his show about the South Africa's Portugal. This is that boosted. Um, but, you know, keep in mind for a BA4-5 in a heavily vaccinated country, this was the peak of, um, I can't even read my slides. Is that That's cases, I believe. Uh, hold on, let me go. This is cases. The cases are keep going up and up. Right. Whereas in South Africa, barely a blip. So much less than their prior peak. Right. And much less than than in the uh, the first wave. Um, and now if you look at the deaths now, look at here, South Africa had way more deaths last winter during that the, the wave of Delta in the winter. Um, but and here they're also somewhat similar, but now they diverge markedly. Right. And so you're seeing just almost a record wave of deaths in Portugal after the first Omicron wave. So this is a different variant of Omicron, but yet it's almost uh, heading towards a peak of deaths again.
And so again, if anyone's wanting to question the utility or safety of these vaccines, these are really damning data. This is also from Igor. I guess he found this map, but this is the current like kind of heat map of cases. And you see a really sharply demarcated line between East and West Germany. And I didn't have the data. I didn't have time to get the data of vaccination rates, but apparently the markedly less vaccinations and a lot more resistance to the vaccines in East Germany than West Germany, which is on fire now with the BA45. All right, I'm going to stop there. Let's bring in our friends and colleagues, Dr. Katajani, um, and maybe we'll switch to something. Uh, we want to talk a little bit more clinical, ask uh, Flavio some questions, um, and then and then maybe we can uh, move to questions. Hey, Flavio. Hey, how are you? I want to show right. something here. I want to show something just to reinforce what you said. Uh, I'm going to just uh, share my screen. Sure. So by, the, by today... Brazil is now the most vaccinated country. It's 101%. So we have more vaccinated than if you see it's above Portugal or Emirates. And when you come here in common, we have uh, the same pattern just to reinforce, okay? Portugal and Brazil has the extreme exchange of people. So Brazil is also facing not as Portugal, but because we got B, the BA5 is after. But we are seeing the array, arrays that South Africa is not. So very vaccinated countries, just like Brazil, now are experimenting the arrays number of deaths. Chile is another very well, very vac well vaccinated population and also experimenting a rise in the number of deaths, just like Portugal. So if you come back here again, Chile, uh, uh, let me come back. Chile is also amongst the country with the highest uh, uh, rates, vaccination rates as well. So in common, we are seeing a very a clear pattern here. Uh, what we know is that BA4 and BA5 uh, no longer respect, because at, until BA1, we could maybe tell there could be some differences between vaccinated and vaccinated. I'm not sure. I didn't really see any difference. But now we're seeing maybe uh, more severe disease among vaccinated people. Since we do not have, basically do not have unvaccinated in Brazil, very few are unvaccinated here now. Uh, we're experimenting. Also, enjoy, Patrick, to Paulo, this is Hold on, I'll mute. Flight. Yeah, by the way, they're calling for your flight to Sao Paulo here. And so what we are seeing that, what did you experiment? So we, when we got into the, the Omicron variant, uh, we saw a rise in the number of transmissibility. Uh, I said that Omicron variant transmits by telepathy, telepathy and but the cases were pretty mild. Now with the BA5, we are seeing a much higher inflammatory response and some are starting to get lungs affected again, okay? One thing that was kept, but it's getting worse is that at least 30% to, 30 to 50% of those with Omicron variants uh, shows a secondary bacterial infection afterwards, usually upper respiratory tract infections and a typical manifestations and a typical course of these diseases. I'm seeing a sort of immune suppression as well. Comes with hey, Fabio, can I ask yeah. you a question? So, I mean, it seems like the big thing 
with Omicron 4 and 5 is, and we'll ask Dr. Rapidi, hey, Dr. Rapidi, is that patients seem to get bacterial pneumonia much earlier. Is, is this true? It is true. It is true. Wait, wait, wait I'm fine. You said upper respiratory tract or lower? Well, no, they're getting both, but they're they're getting more upper. But they're starting to have some are starting some are starting to present pneumonia that were not in the B1 and B2. So you know, I mean, that's a really important finding because you know, in our protocols up until now, we have we have actually been advising against using antibiotics early. And so what you're saying is people are actually developing, you know, bacterial pneumonia. Now, do you have a good reason why this is happening? To me, it's a bit complicated because I think there is a combination of previous vaccines with COVID. I think that the immune suppression caused by vaccines that we know that reduces CD4, CD8, together with the COVID that it leads to a further suppression of the immune system, allows the, the spread of bacteria. Of So this is a just, just a very general explanation. But I think this is a combination. So this is the uh, uh, an epidemic of the immune suppressed uh, driven infections. Immune so I've never used antibiotics as well, like uh, routinely, but I started. So my patients are now using antibiotics since the beginning for the first time since I started treating patients. I wasn't, I've never, I wasn't using it routinely except on my trials, because it as per approval by the ethics committees, but it's for the first time I'm using, and I confess that the results are getting, are being much better. Re, uh, recovering is being faster because I think that between day five and day seven, they start to have a transition uh, to a bacterial second infection. And in this case, we are preventing almost 100% of the cases. So, so you're saying, Day five or day six is when you were seeing them? Yeah, virus or amyloidosis or pneumonia. Yeah. So maybe, hey, Dr. Rapini, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks, man. Sorry for joining a bit late. I apologize. That's okay. Right. You know, better late than never. So, <laughs> you know, Dr. Flavio and his kitty cat was talking about, you know, um, BA4 and 5 in Brazil. Could you tell us your experience in South Africa with BA4 and 5, what you've been seeing clinically and how you're managing these patients? Yeah, perhaps I could start with BA1 and 2 because it came straight, straight after the Delta strain. And I think we should look at the Delta strain to make the comparison because I have a slightly different view on this. Because remember, uh, from uh, the alpha and beta strains, we were talking about day eight. What I was seeing was in day three and four, and I've got a criteria of uh, clinical signs which I devolved for myself that I could pick up a pneumonia without an X-ray or before an X-ray or scan could do it. It was three and four. And we don't understand the Delta strain was 100 times uh, faster in multiplication. So you had to push high doses, you had to pick it up fast, but you had to get the virus in its viral space and not really in the anti-inflammatory state, really wasting your time. I found the BA1 and 2. I didn't see that many pneumonias. By day 1 and 2, I found they were getting better. 
And that's when I called this banana from heaven because this was natural immunity. There were two days and they were fine. I hardly saw any pneumonias. I think in that time I saw 141 patients in about two months, whereas with the Delta strain in two months, I saw a thousand and there were 90% uh, pneumonias in that 1,000. So we had only about 7% pneumonias in the BA1 and 2. Come BA5, what I was seeing, I've seen so far up until yesterday, I saw about 120 patients, 115 of them had pneumonias by my criteria. And I can show you the difference, what early treatment does. Dr. Repeating, let me, let me introduce for one second. Are you talking yeah. about COVID pneumonia or bacterial pneumonia, like COVID organizing? Because we were talking about bacterial complications later in the disease. No, no, I'm talking about COVID pneumonia because we can't really make the difference because I, I've seen what happens. Uh, you know, I, I'm a practical guy. I've seen people that you wait and say, well, you don't have the critical, the clinical text, you know, the, the textbook version of a pneumonia. I really think the stuff that we we learned in clinical years, 40 odd years of crepitations should be the first sign of pneumonia. I find that um, you just treat them for that sore throat and not worry. You, we got to be proactive in our diagnosis and you leave them and you guaranteed within four or five days, well, with this Omicron, you can be three days into a pneumonia, have an oxygen of 95% and not know you've got a pneumonia and you check they got fast crepitation. Whereas with the Delta strain, by day 10, if they didn't come to you for treatment, their oxygen plummeted to 80% needing a, a, a additional supplemental oxygen. But with the Omicron strain, I'm picking up at day one and I've got classical clinical symptoms. And I would ask them, are you feeling tired? Are you feeling short of breath? And I've got these things, you know, like a declining effort tolerance. And, and uh, most people tend to want to be macho, and you got to know what you're looking for. I'm looking for a clinical sign. And I would use one clinic, classical statement for all these machos. You know, they really macho. It makes it different. And I would say, tell me, do you feel a little bit tired today when you, you are changing your clothes, taking a shower, doing minor things compared to three weeks ago? And when they admit to yes, I also do a peak flow meter reading, which doesn't even take 15 seconds. Invariably, the majority of them had a predicted of 25%. That in itself, you know, if you gave them a, a, a bronchodilator, it would not uh, have any reversible effect. Those two signs were fine. And today, yesterday, I picked up another sign because patients do not want to tell you they're tired. So I tell them to pace my rooms about five or 10 times. And I said, now tell me, young man, how are you feeling? And they, they would say they're tired. Now there's only one thing, Pierre, that makes people tired. It's your it, some pathology going in the lungs. What we've been waiting for is crepitations. That's one week too late. If I've got evidence, you got the flu symptoms. And what happened, and by the day one, they got the fever. By day two, these people, tell, some of them tell me, I feel tired. I don't waste my time. The reason is I'm using repurposed drugs. I make a diagnosis of pneumonia. I treat them and bang, by day three, these people are feeling well. And I use high dose steroids because we're not talking about bronchial airway inflammation. We talk about the air sacs and the air sac surface area is about um, at the size of a tennis court. And I must thank you, Pierre, for telling me about the piddly doses that we've been, we've been using asthma doses. 
and you my man, because I've been not wasting my time. I said, kill that virus, stop that inflammation, get them better, get them to work. I treat them from day one. What's the explanation for this? If, I'm, if, if Delta was 100 times, I think BA1 was an, another 100 times, and this one, um, the BA5, was even faster than the Delta strain. So what you're having a fast multiplication and in the BA5, peculiarly, the only thing that's happening is that it doesn't stay, no matter what you did, in the throat and upper, it went straight to your lungs. What else would give you an inflammation? The virus getting into the lungs and you start getting tired and you're gonna wait for the classical signs, you're waiting too late. And, 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 and my concern is when we wait too late, what, what damage are we causing to the lungs? What is the future complications? I mean, you know, you'd rather be on the safer side of sorry. The answer to those three sides, I've got them. It's shortness of breath, uh, it's SOB, DET, declining effort tolerance, and I now coined another one. It's DTOS, declining effort tolerance on some slight exercise. You make them walk in your rooms. It's as simple as that. And I've got so much video footage of people who have told me, doctor, I feel so terrible. Within three days, like you said, I'm feeling great. Okay. I mean, what's Didi, here to lose? Could, I, could I ask you, do you measure their pulse socks in the office when you make them walk? Yeah, I do. Uh, uh, the pulse ox still remains at uh, about 95. So, and, the, and, and, so the pulse ox says, okay, yet they're complaining of fatigue. Yeah. Okay, that's kind of interesting. Now, can I give an explanation why I think this pulse ox, in fact, I've had a 79-year-old female, and, and this is one of the classical signs of a pneumonia. Nothing else. Uh, she just said to me, I have a three-week cough. I've been trying all the cough medicines. Big Pharma must be very happy because all this rubbish has been pushed down their throats. She said to me, I just got this cough that won't get better. The reason I think this is happening is that I think the pneumonia tends to get a bit localized. There is some healthy lung tissue to compensate for the entire bad lung and maintain the oxygen levels. So one mustn't get from, I really do not rely on the oximeter, especially in BA5, even in the Delta strain. If you had an 96% and you told me you were short of breath, I felt that there was some good lung tissue that was compensating for the bad lung tissue, maintaining the uh, oxygen level. So, uh, yeah, so that would be the reason. I mean, throughout, I mean, almost 100%, there's only one patient that had an 80% oxygen, but she had an, an anemia of 80%. So we need a good differential. you got to think of what are the other causes. And she had an anemia of 80%. Uh, the strange thing about Omicron 5, even though it was 80%, I can't explain this. She did not need supplemental oxygen. With Delta, if they dropped to 92%, I would give them supplemental oxygen because one of the classical signs in, at, at the junior delta strains, doctor, when I just move around, especially the elderly, I feel a bit lightheaded. What's happening? The lung, the oxygen levels dropping. So when I would um, put them on oxygen, I would tell them very clearly: till you well on at least five days, where you can breathe on your own. Don't do anything strenuous. There are little things like going to the bathroom. I said, don't take a shower on your own, madam. You you sit on a plastic chair. Because it's so easy, that little bit of effort drops your oxygen, you get dizzy, you can drop off, knock your head and get a head injury. We've got to be very precautious about that. And, and I've had people in the Delta stream for three months on oxygen. Because but Dr. Rapidi, do you start hmm. steroids, high-dose steroids and antibiotics like day one? 
Yeah, uh, well, the minute, you see, I look for the classical signs and I'm finding within the day, they tell me, yes, I do feel tired. I do feel short of breath. And the other one is so boss, shortness of breath on speaking. I said, tell me, do you feel you're running out of breath after a few? Yes, doctor. These are all confirmatory signs, adjuncts. I treat them because the medications I use are so safe. I know if I hit them then and they, they're coming out feeling good, why not? I mean, to wait another week when you know the signs are there. I mean, you know, and I, I think, uh, Paul, we need to relook at the definition of pneumonia. Because what would happen? You're going to start getting inflammation. By the time you get crepitation, it's going to take two days before all that tissue is damaged. And then you're going to get those lovely sounds that the policeman can diagnose. I just feel when you got all the evidence to sign, we're dealing, we know, with a flu, with a, a, a virus type of infection. And now people, are, I've never seen in a flu, for example, somebody's talking about tiredness. I mean, today I had a guy who says, Doc, I think I've got the flu. I said, do you have a fever? No, you don't. Do you have a sore throat? Yes, I do. You have a blocked nose? Yes, I do. I said, okay, let's check you out. I said, that's odd. You don't have these symptoms. I did a peak flow. It was 100. I checked his chest. It was clear. I said, you should get in time. He said, no. I said, walk up and down for me. And he said, fine. He walked 10 paces up and down, no tiredness. Gave him a pump. And his peak flow shot up to 400. I said, you have a history of asthma? He said, yes. And I said, there's your diagnosis. You don't have the preemptive signs of fever, sore throat. And the sore throat is quite simple to understand. People with rhinitis, I have a big interest in asthma, very big for the last 30 years. They also invariably have rhinitis. They sleep with a blocked nose. They breathe with their mouth. Their mouth gets dry and parched. They wake up and say, oh, I got a sore throat. I said, you have a sore throat now? He says, no. I said, it's quite simple. You drank water. You, you cleared your throat. It's now moist. So you got no sore throat. So we must not go just by that sign. And I'm so particular about cleaning the nose, washing it uh, uh, during the COVID period because 90% of the world's people breathe with their mouths. We breathe wrong. The, the nose has three functions. It's to filter the air. Uh, warm the air. Remember when the air on the outside is minus two, the function of this nasal passage is to increase that air temperature to 38. Uh, and it also traps the viruses. When you're breathing in the period of your, your influenza, you're breathing cold air, virus packed, and the cold air acts as a severe trigger factor for asthma. So when you have your clean nose, and if they got rhinitis, I give them nasal spray. We don't complete the treatment. You got to give them a nasal spray with a steroid and you teach them to breathe with the nose, and then that prevents this uh, feeling of tiredness. And the other symptom of asthma, of course, most of my patients, 90%, don't know they've got asthma because even peak flows of 100, they, they can function uh, if you're a 20 year, like a 50 year, and you're quite comfortable. And you ask them, when you play sport, do you get tired quickly? He said, yes. And they put that down to, oh, I just feel I'm unfit. An unfit asthmatic gets tired each time they run. But a, a, a non-asthmatic gets better every time. Unfit. So, you know, I, I've owned down this thing to a kind of perfection in picking it up. So you must be able to make the differentiation. And the other thing is I've found people who have had in asthma previously and undiagnosed previously with the Omicron, it tends to act as a trigger factor. We do know viruses act as trigger factors for asthma. And they have persistent cough, even they feel wrong. That brings on the asthma because it takes about six weeks for an asthma that is precipitated by a viral infection. And for that reason, I love using the 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 uh, a steroid pump 
Because the reason is once I put them in high dose of steroid and I then play, it's either one to two milligrams, bang, I hit them on. And I tend to use Cartesian because I have a policy of using multiple anti-inflammatories so that we have the minimal effects. We don't use too much of steroids. When it comes to people like with diabetes, it is a problem. I'm still prepared to use high dose steroids and put them on a bit of insulin because I need to get that inflammation and insulin and the diabetes sorted out. Yeah, Fabio, so I'm sorry, sorry to interrupt you, Dr. Rapidi. So, I mean, that's really interesting. So, yeah. Fabio, do you think these, because the, the time frame is different with, with this BA5, seems like they're getting pulmonary disease much earlier. Do you think they're actually first developing a viral pneumonia rather than an inflammatory response? And that's what primes the lung for bacterial infection, much like influenza? Yeah, what, uh, yeah, exactly. What he said matches exactly with the recent findings showing that unlike BA1 or 2, uh, BA4 and 5 uh, have uh, higher tropism for uh, milocytes, two, type 2 milocytes in lung cells. So it matches. So I do think that there is a viral pneumonia precedes the bacterial pneumonia. Also, uh, they're starting to use temper two again. So I wasn't seeing reduction in testosterone level. As you know, uh, I do routinely, I, I dose testosterone levels in males upon the diagnosis of COVID-19 as part of my routine as endocrinologist. They were not having a reduction in testosterone levels. They started to have this reduction again with BA5. So I do think that uh, the approach he's telling is is a very good. They're good, very good options, and the timing for glucocorticoids. I, I think there is not such a right, correct, or incorrect answer. Uh, I'm trying to provide a, a very deep antiviral protection before glucocorticoids. So when I start, when needed, I start between day three to five or two to three. But I start start early, but not the first day, to try to provide to provide a sort of an antiviral protection. So that's what I am doing here very very successfully. So can I ask you, Flavio, what what day do you start steroids? Because I think maybe the natural history of or the pathophysiology of BF four and five may be very different from the original SARS-CoV two in terms of you know with SARS-CoV two we were seeing Patients were symptomatic, they may get better. And then by day, day 10, they would start developing pulmonary signs. Now, it seems this is very different. So um, it seems that, you know, that they, they get both probably a combined bacterial viral pneumonia much earlier. So would you start antivirals and then like day two or three, you would start, oh, here we are. So day one, you know, antiviral. Yeah, this makes sense. Yeah. Um, and, and anticoagulant. So tell us yeah. why do you add why do you so people may not know what a pixaban is. So a pixaban is one of the newer novel anticoagulants, much like coumadin, but you don't need to monitor the INR. So why why do you start a pixaban or rivaroxaban like day day one? Okay, basically the reason why I'm starting them first. 
because uh, this is for BA4 and 5. It wasn't like these before because um, almost 100% of my patients are coming with uh, very uh, high level uh, fibrinogen levels and at least 50% with increased D-dimer levels at day one. And they're basically everyone's vaccinated. We know we've got increased risk of thrombosis. And the combination has a theoretical uh, enhanced risk. Above so, so you know, maybe, yeah, so that's a really important point. So the question is, why are they so pro-thrombotic? Uh, because that's a little bit unusual. And maybe it's because they've had spike protein and they're pro-thrombotic that they so pro-coagulant. So that's a really important observation. So, I mean, from my perspective, you know, what you are seeing and Dr. Rapidi is seeing is that you're seeing earlier pneumonia and earlier clotting. So, you know, we, we, you know, we weren't recommending such aggressive anticoagulation early, but it seems with this BA4 and 5 that you, number one, getting pneumonia early, and maybe the clotting problems are, are, are more pronounced. Now, now, obviously in Brazil, everyone's vaccinated. So it may be different for Dr. Rapidi. He may not be seeing all of these procoagulant problems. Dr. Rapidi, are you seeing a lot of clotting? Yes, I do. I do. In fact, uh, unlike the previous trains, um, and I do a routine uh, um, a, a C, CRP, C-reactive protein, and a, uh, um, a D-dimer test. I don't waste my time with x-rays. I don't do PCR tests at all because I, I'm in a low-income area. People can't afford the money. The price of just an x-ray and a PCR test is, is double the amount it'll cost them for me to treat them. I've got to be hands-on clinical and I get them. And I have a protocol by which I use my uh, anticoagulants. I normally start them all on offer the uh, offer aspirin, which is about 150 milligrams. And then when I get my results, if it's under 1,000, uh, I would keep them with uh, the aspirin. But it goes, say, from 1,000 to 1,500, then I would put them on clopidogrel because cost is a factor, and I don't go and over-smash. But if it goes up to 2,000 and above, then I would use something like uh, um, uh, uh, Zeralto in my country, which is about 15 milligrams, because we need to stop that clotting. But when it goes up to 3,000 and 4,000, which I've had in the Delta strain, then I use Clexane in a dose of 40 milligrams twice a day uh, subcutaneously, and then we monitor it. So we'll bring it down. Then I then go take it down to clopidogrel and, and uh, uh, aspirin. So it wasn't too many, you know, Paul, that had very high doses, but I've had one or two where they've had very high above 2,000. And I'd rather do an overcoagulation than an undercoagulation because when you got a stroke to that brain, you got a stroke, there's bloody well nothing you could do. But if you've got good coagulation, uh, anticoagulation, you rest assured, you know, a bit of bleeding is not, I don't know where the bleeding gonna come from. If it does, we can stop the drug and we're good to go. But you undertreat and you run the risk of a, a stroke. I mean, you got yourself another bit of problems. So I've got so, a nice yeah, protocol that I mean, works that me. Yeah, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. So Flavio, would you dis dis distinguish between vaccinated or unvaccinated, or would you just anticoagulate all of them? Uh, 
because uh, the very few unvaccinated that I've been seeing, they're so milder compared to the vaccinated. But anyway, so much milder. Uh, I'm a little bit more, these ones actually are, the assumption is that everyone's vaccinated for my protocols. I think just the first slide was shown there. It would get good to show that maybe the slide for the day two or three or day three to five there was, uh, yeah. So then I start with uh, uh, one of the glucocorticoid in the majority of the cases and an antibiotic here, as you can see. Uh, the point is, this is a assumption that everyone's vaccinated. Remember, just a reminder, it's very few patients that are not vaccinated here. So, uh, when it's no unvaccinated, I may be a little bit less aggressive uh, because there are very few, I think I saw three unvaccinated. But do we have another, an additional point, Paul? These three were very mild with no abnormalities, but they were taking ivermectin irregularly, but they were taking because those taking irregularly, very, very rarely they have it. Rem uh, just to tell you one more thing, prophylaxis with ivermectin uh, when do, done regularly, especially when added with hydroxychloroquine on a weekly basis, I'm not basically seeing one single case. So for my 120 patients that use ivermectin plus hydroxychloroquine on a weekly basis, none of them has got COVID yet and 100% has been overexposed to SARS-CoV-2 virus in several different situations. So this is, we have so far 100% efficacy. This is not a study at all. Flavio, so why, so you using both ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine weekly for pro, the combination in prophylaxis? Yeah, for, uh, since the Omicron started. So, yes, okay, that makes sense because, you know, it seems like hydroxychloroquine may be more effective against um, Omicron. So using the combination, that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, using the combination, yeah, those patients. Of course, I, I highly, and I'm starting to use, um, so because of the vaccine gave the false sensation of, uh, uh, of being uh, protected, of protection, and now they're starting to use again. And, a post-prophylaxis, uh, I've already had 100% efficacy so far in more than 300 cases approximately as a post-prophylaxis with ivermectin plus hydroxychloroquine to date. So I do a two-day ivermectin plus two-day hydroxychloroquine and none of them have uh, has been infected to date with patients known to be at least with two people too, with positive, uh, non-positive COVID patients. Okay, so I have a question for you and then for Dr. Rapidi. So uh, would you treat BA4 and 5 differently? I mean, you kind of hinted in the unvaccinated versus vaccinated. Maybe you wouldn't be as aggressive if someone is not vaccinated. Would that make sense? Uh, to me? Or yes. to... To you, and then I lost Dr. Rapidi. Yeah. So say in a country like, you know, look at Pierre, isn't he? So say say in a country like where, where, where it's half-half or, or less than half vaccinated, um, would you treat them differently? Would you treat the unvaccinated slightly less aggressively? 
you think I think you're talking to we were talking to Robert Robert or I, I was asking you but I'm going to ask Robert now Robert do you yeah. Yeah, no, I don't make the differentiation because I've had a patient who came to me with my signs where he came with uh, two days of illness, uh, Paul, two, just two days of illness. And because of my routine of uh, this uh, PCR and another PCR, a C-reactive protein and the D-dimer, this guy had uh, the normal level is about five by our standards. And he had a, 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 a C-reactive protein of 70 and he had a D-dimer of 2000. So I don't make the differentiation. I, I'm a clinician. I work by clinical science. I take no chances. I treat everybody as you've got a bad pneumonia. You're going to have a clotting problem. I start you on the steroids, uh, the, the, the aspirin. And when I got the results, I've got my criteria by which I will choose which of the three am I going to use, aspirin, clopidogrel, uh, a NOC, or uh, heparin. And I'm not shy to use it because I hit them hard from all sides. And in my country, unlike with Flavio's, I found that we've got about 70% unvaccinated because my, the population in my community is very woke. They're against the vaccine. They hate the damn thing. They don't buy the rubbish that the, the mainstream media gives them. They, they, I mean, and I, I'm surprised. They, they, they're not very highly educated, but they really work. They're better than the doctors. And a lot of the patients have left their own doctors. Say, my doctor keeps pushing the jab and ask. And the old lady said, do you ask the doctors? Do you know what's inside these damn vaccines? Vials and the doctors get very furious about this. So I've got a very smart population. So I don't differentiate the, the way the patient presents. I treat them all as as risk. There's nothing to be lost. If you want to take a chance. You get somebody and say, "Oh, he doesn't look so bad. I'll just work on something mild." You need the you need the information. Look, you know, the D dime is expensive in my country. A lot of these poor people can't afford it. And um, I, I just ask them to get the monies together because it's a very good way of making the difference and getting to know what it is. But I'm seeing quite early in the disease where the D-dimer is pretty high. Yeah. So, so you know, so I just I need to, I just need to tell to say something. My protocol is not a robotized protocol, so I'm just showing as generally. But my approach is very individual, so it's patient by patient. So it's very rare to have exact same prescription for two different patients. Okay, no, so I, no, I mean, I agree. I mean, so you know, that's why doctors are doctors is that you have to. Yeah. So I'm just generally saying, and I have, I also have this confounding factor that patients that were not vaccinated were on ivermectin, even if they were not regularly. So these may have led to mild disease as well. So I don't have one single factor to differentiate them but it's uh, generally i'm saying okay not it's not ever something that i do the same it's what it's not covid19 is anything but one size fits all it's the disease with the most variable clinical manifestations and clinical severity it depends more on the host than on the virus we should never forget that no i mean absolutely but no so one else had to die no one even if the if even in ba4 and 5 no one else had to die from COVID-19. We agree with you, Flavio. I've been aggressive therapy based on the patient's comorbidity, severity of illness, exactly. So Dr. Rapidi, I noticed that you were using two antibiotics, erythromycin and, and, and doxycycline. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, you know, the thing is what I found that, uh, you know, you, you don't wait you know, time is of essence here. I'm not going to wait for a bacterial infection, come back. And I, I mean, I really, so it's 
it's got, and why I use the erythromycin, I find it's, uh, antiviral, it's got some antiviral properties. The, the reason I use the doxycycline primarily for, it's a, it's a zinc ionophore. So what happens is when using your zinc, it'll help, uh, the doxycycline seems to help the zinc to be transported into the cell. And that is what I, I, I use everything. I, because here we, I, I must say, and I agree with Flavia, not one of my patients have died. Like I've said, with BA5, people get an pneumonia. And, and this is why it's so deceptive. You know, I just like to warn practitioners, you know, and, and the public in general, don't think this is a, a cough or of an ordinary flu. Because this, because we know even with flu, your cough can take about six weeks to heal. And you might say, well, it's just a cough. And the thing is, this is a pneumonia that's going on there. So yeah, I, I, I um, uh, uh, and that's the two reasons why I use it. So what, what my point was, I hit the disease from every angle, so I spare no, uh, no enemy, so to speak. Because I know in one week, if I've given you a course of safe medications, I've covered all aspects. I've hit that virus, hit that inflammation. Because in my country, the employees are damn unsympathetic. You don't come back to work within 10 days. They don't pay you. These people live by paycheck to paycheck. My duty as a doctor is to get my patients well, get them back to work. Because yeah, so, so, you know, I, I think, you know, what, what Dr. Rapidi and, and uh, is it Katajani are saying, basically is, you know, BA1, uh, sorry, BA45 is very different to the, you know, alpha, beta strain in which, you know, we would see pneumonia day, day eight or nine. So it seems that you, you have to treat these patients differently. Uh, antibiotics yep. early, corticosteroids early. Um, someone was asking what black seed is, and obviously that's Nigella sativa. Is that correct, Dr. Rapidi? Yeah, it is correct. They did a study in Pakistan where they did, uh, you know, patients, they put them in Nigeria sativa, and they gave them, you know, and they differentiated the two groups. And, uh, and Nigeria sativa came out tops over remdesivir and over ivermectin in terms of recovery rate hospitalization complications and clearing of viral load. And I think what is very important, and we learned, and a patient told me that she learned this somewhere, using these seeds by themselves, they don't get absorbed so well. I think it's a good idea to get the powder version because it's better absorbed. And it's best if you took this Nagina sativa with a bit of honey because the honey has an enzyme which enhances and facilitates the absorption of Nigella sativa. It's got numerous benefits. It's not toxic. It's very good for lung infections. If, if I must use one thing as a prophylactic, I would rather use Nigella sativa. It is freely available in our, our regulatory authorities for the gods that they are can't stop it because they're trying to stop things like neck and so on. But we don't, I don't um, have patients who can go on to uh, prophylactic um, ivermectin because it's not freely available in our country. It's extremely expensive. It shouldn't be, but it's prohibitively expensive. So that is a problem. So I use Nigella sativa. And uh, of course, I, I know patients that I've, I've got more morbid illnesses or the elderly where I suspect we're dealing with a more serious situation. I would have put them onto NAC and acetylcysteine because all these work as adjuncts. You know, you, you hit them with as many innocuous drugs that are safe, and then you know you've covered your patient. So, yeah, there, there's a kind of protocol in which I go where I differentiate my patients by com comorbidities and age. 
One thing I must say that I've had no deaths, no deaths during the Omicron and, and the uh, uh, one BA1 and BA4 and 5. But in the Delta strain, I had a 99.95%. And the reason for that was they came to me three weeks too late. If anybody came to me early, I could treat them. I've had people, I've had two patients, 35% oxygen, refused to go to the hospital. They said, doctor, I'm going to die in your hands. I'm not going to hospital. They gave me that confidence. So I just thought I'm going to do my thing and see how well it works. Both patients did extremely well. Within six weeks, I got the oxygen level up to 95%. And for, for the the naysayer in my country, Dr. Abdul Karim, who is the equivalent of your Dr. Fauci, who's, who's been knocking me and calling me the, uh, well, this is one um, uh, 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 or quack doctor. He calls me a quack doctor. Paul, I'm very pleased to be a quack doctor that's been saving the patients from hospital. I've had two patients discharged on oxygen from hospital wanting to be under my care. The one guy was 72 years old. He had a severe emphysema. He had an oxygen of 60%. He had to be on oxygen. And within three months, I got this guy better. And three months later, I got a lovely message saying, I'm celebrating Christmas with my family. So, yeah. No, so, yeah. so, I mean, to summarize, I mean, I think what you, Dr. Rapidi and Kadijani are basically saying is very, you know, very similar. Treat them aggressively, treat them with antibiotics, treat them with steroids and individualize, uh, you know, according to patients, um, you know, comorbidities and severity. The one thing is that I notice, uh, both of you don't use Paxlovid, you know, the wonder drug. Um, <laughs> well, look, look at the price of Paxlovid. It's 7,000 rands. And uh, it's got absolutely no place. I think it's criminal to use an antiviral on day two when you got your inflammation. You're eating blank bullets and you're giving damn side effects. I mean, we know he's a protease inhibitor. It's got lots of cross reactions. And it works on the cytochrome 450 enzyme system. You got your elderly people with comorbidities and they've got anti epileptic drugs. You can push those drugs into toxicity. It's absolute rubbish. It is stupid because I, I also found that using high dose ivermectin once in the, in the in inflammatory state doesn't make sense to me. So, what I would do is I would drop that level. And the thing is with your steroids, again, we are from my days of Delta. You treat the patient, as Flavia rightly said, you treat people individually. I've had patients on low-dose steroid for over a month, two months. You treat the symptoms the way they feel it. When they short of breath and their lungs are damaged, you put them on low-dose steroids. I would put them on even 10 milligrams of steroid as an encolchicin because you got to treat those lungs. you got to treat that inflammation. What I can say to you, when I've treated my patients aggressively from day two, uh, I've never, I, in the 3,000 I've seen, I've not had one long COVID. To me, long COVID is only one thing, failure to treat early. The other thing is I have a big mental health practice. I'm big on depression, anxiety, panic disorders. And I think uh, uh, long COVID is being overdiagnosed because if you look at the symptoms of panic disorder, anxiety and depression, there's a big overlap, feeling tired, feeling anxious, lethargic. You must remember after the COVID infection, the ordeal that they go through, most people, I had a young guy, 22, he wanted to come uh, for a, a diabetes check. I can actually look at the pneumonia in the face before you open your mouth. 
I said, no, man, this doesn't look like just diabetes. He had a blood sugar of 16. And I, I, I examined him. He had a whopping pneumonia. This poor bloke was sick on a Monday. He went to the hospital on a Tuesday and he said, I'm tired. He said, oh, no, your oxygen's fine. Go home. He waited five days. He came to me. He was moribund. He was sick. So I'm saying if you don't treat on my criteria of what does this guy have lung pathology, what is you short of breath, you're going to miss the boat. Within five days, this guy was so sick. But in spite of his diabetes, I hit him with high dose of steroids. I tried to work with, uh, you know, oral antidiabetics because he couldn't afford the insulin. The state hospital wouldn't give it to him. They chased you away with a 95%. They, they're not clinicians. They're really idiots. And, and I must say, within about eight days, for within eight days, this guy was looking well. His sugar was up. Uh, I, I could guys send you these videos because this is proof because they think I'm doing pie in the sky. So even if you've got a diabetic, you hit them with steroids and, and you don't stop the steroids when you've done your five-day course. Nothing is a hard and fast rule. You treat it individually. Patients got symptoms, you check. And if you've got patients got symptoms, I would say actively look at that D-dimer. You might be having a clotting problem because either of those situations and the pneumonia or a bit of clotting could limit your oxygen levels and make you feel tired. So you got to treat them progressively. Once okay, Rafidi, you know, so, yeah. yeah, I agree with you. So can I make a recommendation? You know, uh, Dr. Fauci had COVID or he has COVID. He, yeah. he took Paxlovid and apparently he's rebound and is having severe symptoms. So maybe you could send him your protocol because he doesn't seem to know how to treat COVID. Um, so maybe I think you could send him a copy of your protocol. Maybe it would help him. No, absolutely. No, no. Fauci is a laughing fool. He's got no clinical acumen. He doesn't know. Even the WHO doesn't know as much as I do. You know, with all due respect, Paul, you guys only see complications. But if you're in my area, you will not see one COVID patient because I handle them in my rooms. I handle them in their homes. I've had patients with, with, with uh, pre-diabetic, elderly lady, 79 years old, had uh, heart problems, had rheumatoid arthritis. She had the works. She wasn't getting better. I taught the patient on WhatsApp how to use insulin. It was really cool that I was teaching them how to do it. So, and I said, wow. she couldn't even get up. She couldn't get out of bed. But I persevered three weeks. We push on. I make myself very available. I mean, on social media, they contact me at any time. They don't have to come into my rooms. Tops, within two Visits, two visits for all my patients get better. First time yeah. I assess them, aggressive management, second time round, it's easy peasy, you're good to go. They're smiling. It's, it's, you know, I don't understand this. I, in my 45 years of being a doctor, I've never found such a rewarding condition to treat. You see people, um, the, and the guy that I told about, the young man of 22, he was telling his wife, hey, I, darling, I think I'm going to die. That's what they tell you. When a patient tells you I'm going to die, suspect a pneumonia because these blokes can't breathe and, and we're not picking some. What wrong no, you Rapini, and I know, you know are not in the textbooks. We must know, put it in the textbooks. Yeah. Thank you, both of you. No, so, uh, Joyce, do we have any questions from our audience specifically for either of our guests? Questions. We'll try to get to as many as possible. This has been an absolute treasure trove 
of phenomenal information from all of you. So thank you so much in advance, but let's get to some of these questions. First from Jeremy, can these two variants morph into a super variant with a higher fatality rate than Delta, for instance? Or can we assume that with natural immunity, uh, naturally acquired immunity and early effective treatments that fatality rates will remain low? Yeah, so that's a really good question. So Flavia, where, where do you think we're going from here? You know, how do you think these, these uh, viruses are gonna mutate and morph uh, in time? Um, and hopefully it won't affect your cat. <laughs> oh, they're fine. I think um, <laughs> it's very hard to predict where we're going from now on. We're seeing a, a slight increase in case fatality rates uh, here, here, and I'm not pretty sure. Uh, I, I think it's going to be better after BA5 again, but it's very hard to tell because the biological behavior and the, the evolutionary biology of this virus to me is a bit uh, uh, weird. Uh, I don't, I mean, I'm not a virologist, I'm not an infectious disease by, by practice, uh, I'll, even though I do have med internal medicine. Um, but as far as I've been studying viruses and it doesn't really behave, it doesn't really behave as other viruses. So I'm, 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 bit, I'm a bit afraid of giving any uh, prediction regarding where we're going from now. Really, this yeah, is Dr. so repeated. What, what do you think? Because obviously, it's a good question. You know, what's coming next? You know, Gertfun and Bosch was very, um, you know, he was he, his predictions have come really true, and he's predicting that you know we we're not out of the woods and we we may be in store for an even worse variant. Mm. What do you think, Doctor Rapidi? Yeah, the only person who can tell you what's going to come next is the non-medical doctor, self-appointed chief, um, uh, Mr. Billy Goat Gates. Nobody in his cleverest mind with the highest credentials can tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. And I'll tell you why I'm saying this. Because we didn't know after Delta strain, we're going to get an Omicron strain. And what Fabio was saying is absolutely correct. What the guys see in the lab and what we see clinically is not the same. Here we had Omicron with 34 mutations, 10 different mutations on the spike protein, but it was innocent as a baby. It did nothing for you. So you can't say, oh, you got so many mutations. Therefore, this translates to a clinical pattern and uh, virulence. That's absolute rubbish. But what I can say, I've been treated patients for the last two and a half years. I know the pathogenesis, viral, inflammatory, and clotting. And all I need to do is, no matter how it comes, if, if if the way it presents, I know exactly how to hit it on. When I had the Delta strain, I did not, I'm sorry, Paul, listen to you about the eight days. I said, you got symptoms of pneumonia. I'm going to create my symptoms. And I hope you guys will take my clinical signs because, guys, it will save you money. What does a cat scan cost you? I think probably $10,000. Waste of bloody time. I've picked up, by the way, Flavio doesn't tell you this because I don't know what's his experience. For the first time, for the first time, I've had five children under two with pneumonias. Clinically, I put them on steroids, and within three days, they're bouncy back after temperatures of 39. So what's the future? Nobody can predict it. And you can't go by the lab 
and the lab tells you, oh, there's a mutation. We see the signs. We're the first guys. The WHO must contact Flavio and me. We will give them a hotline to tell you what's happening. He's seen about 140. I've seen 120 in, in, in one month. What does he tell you? Look at the Delta strain. In two months, I saw 1,000. In one month, I saw just 115. So it's not that infective. So we the guys who can give you the information. What I'm saying is do not live in fear and do not fear to live. If you've got the symptoms, we know the pathology, we've got the treatment, we can do it. What you need to do in the viral state, when I feel what I can say for certainty, each virus has multiplied faster than the previous one. So you don't play with your ivermectin. When I use ivermectin, I use it in close to toxic doses because they've done numerous studies. The, all that you get is a bit of diarrhea. I'd rather give you a bit of diarrhea than to under undertreat and send you to your damn death because you need, and Paxlovid ain't going to work. Paxlovid is useless. Remdesivir, you need to be sick in hospital. How stupid is this, Paul? You're going into a hospital, you got the inflammation, and you're getting a 30,000 rand or $3,000 drug that's meant for a virus that's not there. Are these guys dumb in their heads? I think all these antivirals don't work. Why like ivermectin? It works as an antiviral, anti-inflammatory, anti-thrombotic. You're on a safe side. But if you're going to treat the next viral strain, you hit them with 0.8 milligram. I've even used up to one milligram because I, I, I saw we're the soldiers. The virus is our enemy. We don't play with it. You know, so the, what's there to lose? I Joyce, mean, the study do you have any? Thanks. Joyce, do you have any, some more questions? Yes, we do. Uh, this is from Uli says, I fully, fully recovered from Omicron in February. Are there any studies showing how long this natural immunity will last? Yeah, so I'll just tell him that, that the natural immunity from BA1 or BA2 against BA4 and 5 is not that good. Would you agree, Flavio, so that the yeah, likelihood... A, well, I haven't seen a lot. There, theoretically, there is a paper that came out showing that there is escape for BA5 from BA1 not so much from BA2, but in practice, uh, I don't see, uh, I still do not see. So uh, people that got COVID, uh, Omicron in general, getting it now again. I mean, I saw one or two cases, but I think that these cases from January were Delta in January. Yeah, so I think the point is, Joyce, that you if, if you had BA1 or BA2, yeah, there's no guarantee that you're not going to get BA4 or BA5. So I think that you still have to be cautious and that, you know, if you are exposed to somebody who has COVID, you know, I think one should do the prevention protocol. You know, the, um, you know, you can use hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin and the uh, ID nose spray, because I think you have to take this seriously. Um and, you know, that may be a good starting point to tell the folks that we've actually have some new protocols with some new names. Is yes, this we, true, Joyce? We do. We do. We have uh, we've been promising you for a couple of weeks. Uh, we've updated our protocols to make them a lot easier to navigate because we know how stressful it can be when you're sick. And you, um, many of you know that firsthand. So we have officially now retired our iMask Plus protocol. Um, and we are happy to introduce the iCare and iPrevent 
protocols. Uh, Paul, can you tell us a little bit about what's in them? And, and again, we, we broke it up to make it a little bit easier. I prevent is pretty much what it says it is, but Paul, you can elaborate a bit on that. And then- Yeah, so, yeah, so Joy, so, you know, I prevent is, you know, prophylaxis or prevention, and really it comes in two forms, is chronic prevention in high-risk people um, who in a situation that they're at high risk and, um, you know, at, at risk, and then this post-exposure prophylaxis. So if, if a family member is exposed or you're exposed to somebody who has, you know, has COVID, there's the, um, there's the post-exposure prophylaxis. So that's eye prevent, which has two flavors. And then the eye care is the acute um, treatment of acute symptomatic uh, early treatment of COVID. And as, as we've always said from the beginning, the most important is early aggressive treatment. Um, so eye care really was directed against Omicron 1 and 2 and 1, one to 1. So we're going to have to maybe, you know, after this evening with the input from Flavio and Dr. Rapidi, mm -hmm. um, you know, we may need to modify it a little bit, but I think the folks get the idea. So it's basically eye care. I think the biggest difference is that we would use antibiotics uh, up front. And so, you know, as, as we've always said, you know, this is a dynamic process. Nothing stays the same. We follow the science. And, um, you know, we, we adapt our protocols as the patient, as the disease evolves and as the science evolves. Exactly, exactly. Um, I, I think we have time for about one or two more questions if you all do. Yep. Okay, good. Um, question for Dr. Rapidi. Um, talking about your patients, Dr. Rapidi, uh, people want to know, this is actually from Julia, uh, are your patients mostly vaccinated or unvaccinated? And how, what is the difference in treatment uh, between the two groups? Who's the yeah. question to Dr. Rapidi? It is. Yeah. <clears throat> Look, um, like I said, the majority in my, of my practice of patients are unvaccinated. I would say 70% are unvaccinated. But my approach is that I treat everybody equally. Uh, I don't say, well, because you're vaccinated, you're going to get more severe treatment. I treat clinically, but there's one point I need to make outside this question. I think we need to bear in mind, and we're missing this. And Omicron BA4 and 5 has got four different amino acids, making it almost a totally different strain. I personally had um, BA1 or, or 2 in, in, in April, but in, in June, I picked up BA5. What it's, it doesn't mean natural immunity doesn't work. And I think this is what people need to know. If you don't have the right size for the right foot, it ain't gonna work. It's not a case of breakthrough, natural immunity not working. You got a different strain. It's like the flu virus. We know this. When it changes, you change your, um, your, your vaccine. So the same thing would be a four and five. I don't know why we're calling that. We're creating the impression it's from the same family. Therefore, natural immunity should work. I think everybody who has got BA1 is at risk of getting BA4 and 5 because it's got these four different amino acids on the spike protein. Yeah, we so have you been, are at risk. Yeah, yeah. So you know, actually about what multiple infections, some two or three weeks apart. Somebody had COVID and then two or three weeks later, they get it again. So, That's you know, right. what Dr. Rapidi says is true. And in fact, our good friend, Dr. Saeed Bean, 
or Mobine, yeah. basically says, you know, this is not SARS-CoV-2, this is SARS-CoV-4 or 5. It's a different virus. And I agree we, with that. I, I totally agree with that. And I don't buy this rubbish about breakthrough infections. It's a nuance. It's a euphemism to say that the vaccine doesn't work. I mean, you can't have a vaccine works partially, Paul. Paul, maybe you can answer this question. I've never heard of a vaccine that minimizes your symptoms, reduces the virus. A vaccine either kills a damn virus or it doesn't. It doesn't do it halfway. You don't go swimming one leg in the water and one leg on, on, the, on the ground. So that's a lot of rubbish, hocus pocus. We must stop using the term and breakthrough infection. And thank you for giving me this platform. I've been dying to say this. There's no breakthrough infection. There's failure. And if natural immunity doesn't work, it's simply because you're dealing with a different strain and the human body is equipped to do it. Yeah, I think there that's is. a good point. You know, this is a different virus. I mean, yeah, like SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2 were different. Uh, I think this is SARS-CoV-4 or 5. It's a different virus. Hey, Joyce, do we have any other questions? One, la one last question. Um, and uh, this is uh, from somebody who um, who wants to know if Nigella sativa is safe in pregnancy. We talked a lot tonight about uh, black seed. Is it safe in pregnancy? Yeah, it's absolutely safe uh, in pregnancy. Uh, and the other thing for people that are pregnant, I use uh, fluvoxamine or an SSRI. It's very safe. I do a lot of mental health, so I know it's safe. You can use uh, hydroxychloroquine, it's safe, and you can use colchicin. I've done the research on that. So for pregnant women, there too, I've treated two women, absolutely fine, no problems. Get them out, treat them, and, and they'll be fine. No need to worry. Because you hesitate with a pregnant woman. I do need to be very careful here. When pregnancy is concerned, you don't want to damage the fetus. Remember, they can go through all the barriers, the blood-brain barrier, they can go to the placental barrier, and you're damaging a, a, a forming fetus. And that is why the vaccine, I think, you know, I know I'm going off here. Be so very careful, guys. Be so careful. You In America, you've got this gango Fauci pushing you with four types of vaccines. So that the baby, the fetus, is getting four vaccines. The mom gets two breakthrough infections. That forming fetus gets six doses of that, that uh, horrible toxic protein. Which fetus is going to survive? No, no wonder we're getting so many miscarriages, 86% in the first trimester, and getting deformed babies. Catch a wake up. I mean, if a normal, healthy body cannot tolerate this down vaccine, what's a forming fetus, fetus going to do? It's criminal to even have, I, I don't know what's going to happen for those people that have been vaccinated and having a baby. But be wary of that. So, yeah, you can use Nachala Sativa. You could use hydroxychloroquine. You could also use uh, colchicin. Prednisone, I'd be very hesitant to use. So uh, you know, I, it seems, seems that honey and, you know, uh, honey, you can get it from the supermarket. It works really well synergistically with Nachala Sativa. And I think there's data to support both. So yeah, you know, yeah. just, be yeah, my just be my honey. Take your honey and some black seed. Well, black seed can be used prophylactically, Paul. This is the thing. And uh, I mean, it's accessible and, and it's got a multi, especially people with obstructive airways diseases and chest problems. So, you know, it's got a multitude of other uh, benefits. It's just not for the virus. It's antiviral, anti-inflammatory. Uh, it's it, it's even got some anti-clotting properties, but it won't do any harm. It's cheap. Put it in your food, give it to your family, and you know you're good to go. So thank you. I want to thank our panelists. Uh, Joyce, do we have anything to finish with? 
Just a couple of announcements. I just have to say this has been uh, a night of such rich information. Um, and I know a lot of people were, you know, they need to really digest it. So this is going to be online tomorrow. So you can watch it at your own speed because there was a lot of phenomenal information from all three of you and Dr. Corey when, uh, when he wasn't taking off and uh, going to Brazil, as I understand it. So Flavio, you... Yeah, he'll meet me. He'll meet, he'll meet me tomorrow. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you so much for inviting us. Oh, our pleasure as always. And of course, um, we uh, we just want to remind you of a couple of things before we go. Um, this week, uh, our uh, Paul, you mentioned Dr. Bean, Dr. Mobin Syed, is going to be looking at how COVID can disrupt the formation of new neurons in the brain and uh, what lifestyle and diet changes may help combat the process of neurological deterioration. That's long COVID story short. So Joyce, you know, I've, I've listened to this talk. It's truly fascinating. Um, Dr. Bean, uh, he brings up some stuff that I did not know. And I think people will find this talk absolutely fascinating because you want to do what you can to protect your brain and your brain plasticity. And um, his talk is just truly astonishing. Yeah. So that that's, uh, that's up now on our uh, website on, um, yeah, on our website and on Odyssey. Um, and uh, as you know, everyone, we are uh, up against a barrage of shadow banning and throttling and other kinds of online censorship, uh, the absolute best way for us to stay in touch with you is for you to sign up to receive our newsletter. Um, comes directly via email whenever we have news to share. We're not going to uh, overstay our welcome or overuse the privilege of speaking to you. So no spam. Um, and if you think it's too much, you can always un unsubscribe. But if you look at this slide, you will see that there are other ways you can follow us on social media as well. Uh, and finally, lastly, but not leastly, if there's such a word as leastly, um, in addition to the resources and efforts it takes to get our message out to as wide an audience as possible around the world, we're also working hard to stay on top of the latest science as you see here tonight. So we can update our protocols and treatment approaches as we have done tonight and we're fighting hard, really hard to defend our doctor's ability to do what they do in the face of constant attacks. And I will say like Betsy, I've been here from the very inception of the FLCCC in March of 2020. Um, and I always hear people say, um, just listen to the experts. I just have to tell you all, there are no greater experts than the physicians of the FLCCC and our guest tonight, Dr. Rapiti. Again, thank you for joining us for the first time. I'm sure it's the first of many times we'll see you, Dr. Rapiti. But uh, these are the experts that uh, the world should be turning to because their success in saving hundreds of thousands, if not millions of lives during the course of this pandemic is absolutely unparalleled. But again- hey Joyce, just yes. to finish off, um, I, I just received a text. Um, doc, Dr. Zelenko is critically ill. Um, no. So I think we need to pray for him. 
know. Oh my yes. goodness. So I know, um, I know he today he just announced the formation of the Zelenko Foundation. Yes. So um, I to think support he had doctors a, and medical freedom. Yeah, he had a he had a cardiac event today. So um, oh, no. we need to have him in in our prayers. Oh my goodness. I'm so, so sorry to hear this. And probably many of our viewers uh, know of Dr. Zev Zelenko, who has been in this fight again since the very beginning. And again, just recently formed the Zelenko Foundation. It's really, that's really tough news to hear tonight. Um, okay. So, yeah. so I want to so, thank everybody. It yes. was very interesting. And um, you know, and I want to thank our I, I want to thank our nurses who have been behind the scenes, and we maybe we can bring them out. Um, oh, yes, know, that's a good idea. I know that uh, Christina had to leave a little bit early, but Samantha Hank, Scott Rogers, Pamela Burnham, and I know um, uh, Christina said that um, they answered one hundred and forty-two questions out of two hundred and ten. So. They've been working hard. Thank you all so much for all you do every week. Um, just really giving out the expert advice that our viewers and the world really needs uh, from all of you. You're, you're really in our hearts for all that you do. And thank you to everyone for tuning in tonight. Again, I'm Joyce Kamen sitting in for Betsy, who will be back in a couple of weeks. Again, Bets, we miss you. Good night, everyone. Mm -hmm.